As we get started this morning, I want to take us back around to the question that we ask on Easter Sunday morning. Easter Sunday morning, as we looked at the end of Mark's gospel, we asked the question, what could cause us to miss the power of the resurrection? How could you be around the things of God? How could you be a part of Jesus' ministry? How could you experience all the things that the disciples experienced and miss out on the power of the resurrection? I don't want any of us to miss out on the power of Jesus in our lives. What could cause us to miss out on that? And we said from Mark chapter 16, one of the ways you miss God's power in your life is because of fear. And there's three kinds of fear that we identified on Easter from that scripture that that works in our lives. Three kinds of fear. Number one is the fear that the past will control me. Number two is the fear that the present is just going to overwhelm me. And three is the fear that the future will disappoint me. So last week, we looked at what happens when it feels like the present is going to overwhelm you. When you can't take another ball to juggle, you can't take another plate to spin, like your life just feels completely overwhelmed. And some of you may have lived through that this this past week. What do you do? We we talked about that last week from Isaiah chapter 6. This morning, we're going to talk about what does it mean to deal with the past? when it feels like what you've done in your past or what's happened in your past continues to control your life. You feel like, I can never move ahead. I can never move forward in my relationship with God because of what has happened in my past. Let's pray together and we're going to get right into that. Father, every one of us comes into a room like this carrying some kind of baggage. (laughs) We've, We've had church experiences in the past. We've had hard family and life experiences in the past. We've done dumb things in the past. We, we all bring a past into a moment like this. And in our worst moments, our past just controls us. We never are able to move forward. We continue to live in the fear that our past is going to catch up with us. And God, I pray that from your word, that you would provide freedom for us to be able to move forward through the hope of the gospel. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, Our lives do not have to be defined by our past. And God, would you bring that good news to us this morning through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm chapter 51. I hope I said that earlier, but I kind of blanked out for a moment. I don't remember. I could have put you in the wrong spot, wrong chapter. Apologize if I did that. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. These are the words of the Lord, the words that David wrote. Let me ask you a question from those verses. 
How do you think Bathsheba felt the first time she heard that psalm? Psalm chapter 51. How do you think Bathsheba felt? What do you think Bathsheba was thinking about the first time David shared those words with her? We know that the background to Psalm chapter 51, the background is 2 Samuel 11 through 12. We know from the heading that's given at the beginning of Psalm chapter 51, the heading to that chapter says that this refers back to the time when Nathan the prophet confronted David because of Bathsheba. If you don't know the story from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, the story is that King David was supposed to be off at war, except he was at home where he was not supposed to be. And we know one really good way to get in trouble is to be bored and to be where you're not supposed to be. Parents, amen? Like when your kids are bored and they're not where they're supposed to be, that's a really good way to get in trouble. Um, David is at home. He's supposed to be off at war, but he's at home. He's up on the roof. And scripture says he's just kind of walking back and forth, almost gives off the feeling that he's bored, that he has no purpose or meaning or anywhere to go. He's walking back and forth, and he sees what it says is a very beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of this, a drawing of this, uh, hopefully not a very explicit drawing as I say that out loud, but uh, if, you've, if you've ever seen this portrayed, but oftentimes it's portrayed as if Bathsheba is over on another roof just, just taking a bath. I think that completely misunderstands the situation. Most likely, Bathsheba is down in a courtyard or maybe on a side room in her home, and David is able to, to look down because this is not just a regular bath that she's taking. And Bathsheba is most certainly not a seductress in this situation. Uh, the scriptures are so clear about her innocence in this story. She is taking what is considered a ritual purity bath. And again, with kids in the room, just not saying too much, but, but this is after her period that she's taking this bath because it was a way to purify herself so that she could go back and be a part of the religious observances, so she could be a part of the temple. She is following God's word by participating in this purity bath. And so the sin is not Bathsheba bathing, the sin is David looking. And it says that when David looked, he saw that she was beautiful. Now here's the fascinating thing about that story. If your mind goes back to Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible, when Eve is tempted and she looks at the fruit, what did we find out in Genesis 3? She saw that it was good. The exact same words used for Eve in Genesis chapter 3 are used for David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. He saw that she was good and he took something that was not his to take. It was not the time, it was not something that he was to take. And David, in this situation, what does he do? He makes a bad situation worse. So not only does he take Bathsheba for himself, but he turns around and gets her own husband killed. And David probably felt like he got away with it in this situation, except Nathan the prophet shows up. And Nathan the prophet shows up, and he tells David a story about a rich man who had all the flocks that he could ever want, and there's a poor man that has only one little lamb and this rich man has a friend that comes into town, a traveler that comes to town. And the rich man, instead of taking one of his, the sheep from his flock, what does he do? He turns around and he takes the only lamb that this poor man has. David hears this story and he gets upset. He says, how could that poor man lose his only lamb? How could the rich man do that? And what does Nathan say? He says, you demand 
Like the one time that you don't want to be the man, Nathan says, you are that man. You have done that thing. And here's the shocking thing about that story. The story doesn't end there. Because we know after that story, what does David do? He continues to be able to serve as the king. What do we know about Bathsheba? Her story doesn't end in that moment. We know from the end of David's life that that Bathsheba remains loyal to Nathan the prophet and loyal to her husband David. And it's her wisdom and courage that allows the kingdom to continue on at the end of David's life. Here's a situation where what David has done in his past and what has been done to Bathsheba in her past could have easily been the end of the story, but it wasn't. What happened to Bathsheba and what David did did not define the rest of their lives. They were able to move on. I don't know what your past includes. I don't know what your past includes. I don't know what you've done in your past. And I don't know what has been done to you in your past. You may be David, who has hurt others, who's been sinful in a lot of situations, and that sin, that guilt of what has happened in your past continues to haunt you to this very day. Or you may be in Bathsheba's situation, where something was done to you, where you were the recipient of sin, where you have been traumatized, or you've been caused pain, and what happened to you in your past continues to impact your relationship, relationship with the Lord and with others right up to this moment. And so the question is, how do we move forward? How does the fear of the past not control us? How do we continue to move forward with life when we've done dumb things or things have been done to us? This is where Psalm 51 becomes such a great gift. Let's look at Psalm 51. We're going to work our way through this chapter. And from this chapter, I want to give you four ideas, four steps, you might call them, that we can be able to move past the past, so to speak. Psalm chapter 51, verse 1. Let's start there. It says in the beginning there, beginning part of verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. At this moment, David cries out to God. He realizes, David realizes, the situation that I'm in, I cannot get myself out of. I need God's mercy. My only hope is him. And specifically, he appeals to God's character. He says, you are a God of steadfast love. You are a God of abundant mercy. Your love does not end. It is a faithful, loyal love. This is one of the most famous words in the New, Old, Old Testament to describe God's character. That he is a God of steadfast love. That he can be trusted throughout all of time. And his mercies are abundant. They are deep. Anybody in little kid preschool learn the song Deep and Wide? Deep and Wide? This is kind of the idea behind this, that God's mercies are deep, that they are abundant, and they are wide. They do not end. They have been with us all the time, and they will continue into the future. And so David, in his time of greatest need, appeals to God's character. God, you are gracious and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Into verse 1. So what do I need? Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So this is that poetic idea where something is mentioned three times, and then another idea is mentioned three times. Three times, with different words, David asked for God's forgiveness. Blot out 
wash me, cleanse me. And then he uses three different words to describe the reality of what he has done. This is a transgression, this is an iniquity, this is a sin. And notice the pronoun, the possessive pronoun that goes with that. It's my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. What's he doing here? He is taking ownership of this. He is realizing it's my junk that got me into this. It's my sin, it's my transgressions, my iniquity that has got me in this situation. He's not blaming somebody else. He's realizing that he's gotten himself into this situation. He's, he's owning it, he's acknowledging it. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When I was reading this verse this week, there's a part of me that stopped and said, whoa, time out a second. Uh, against you, you only have I sinned? Like, wait, what? you most definitely sinned against Bathsheba. Like, what is the language going on here in Psalm 51 that David would say, God, against you, you only have I sinned? The point of this language, as I try to do some more research and see how this was used in other places, David is not downplaying what he has done to Bathsheba. In fact, he is elevating the seriousness of what he has done to Bathsheba by realizing, by acknowledging that his sin against Bathsheba was a sin against God. He, in that way, is elevating the intensity and, and the, the pain of what he has caused, what he has done to Bathsheba. He's saying, when I sinned against you, it was a sin against God, the one who created you and made you, the one who looks over all things. And so we can look like it looks like for just a second that David might be downplaying or overlooking what he's done to Bathsheba, but he's taking ownership. He's realizing that when he sinned against her, it was a sin against God. If you want to make a connection on this verse, the connection is Genesis chapter 39, where Joseph is being tempted by Potiphar's wife, and he acknowledges that if he gives in to that, if he sleeps with Potiphar's wife, it's very clear in Genesis 39 that he says this would have been a sin against God. I cannot sin. I cannot do this because it would be a sin against God. There's a connection between Joseph and, and, and Genesis 39 and David's story here. So don't read this verse and see David downplaying his sin or overlooking Bathsheba. He's recognizing how bad he has messed up, what he has done to sin against God. Then verse 5. Verse 5 takes us down a rabbit hole that we definitely do not have time, but I'll just name the rabbit hole and let you chase it later. Um, verse 5, Behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This verse has been famous through the years, connected to part of Christian theology, Christian doctrine called original sin. And so very strong proponents, uh, people that talk about original sin, this is one of the verses that, that they use in Scripture. There's a lot of debate about exactly how to understand that. Interestingly enough, uh, a guy that years and years ago was on staff here at Emmaus named Adam Harwood, who's now a professor at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, where I went to seminary, and, and Adam was, a, was a, a great person to know when we were in New Orleans. But Adam has written a new systematic theology textbook, um, and he has a really good perspective on this to say what David is doing here in this verse is David is saying, when I sinned against Bathsheba, 
when I committed adultery and then committed murder by getting Uriah killed, when I did those things, that wasn't just like a freak accident. It wasn't an anomaly in my life. My, my life has been haunted from sin from the very earliest days up into my adulthood. And not only that, but I came from sinful people. This is like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 saying, I've sinned, my lips are unclean, and I live among a people of unclean lips. What David is doing in this verse is he's saying, when I screwed up, when I sinned, unfortunately, that revealed who I am. <laughs> that revealed my character. That revealed my brokenness. And sometimes, you know, in our, in our worst moments, words come out of our mouths, and we're just, we're thinking, where did that come from? Like, that's not me. Friend, I hate to tell you. That's us. <laughs> like, when those words come out, you're like, that's not me, that's not me. Where did those words come from? Jesus said they came from my heart. They came from inside me. And so David, at this point, is acknowledging again, when I did that, it pains me to realize it, but that came from inside. That came from, from who I am. It came from the brokenness of my life. Verse 6. Because, what, what do we know about God? Verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is so important for who we are as Emmaus, verse 6. What verse 6 is saying, David is acknowledging that our lives have to be lived from the inside out. So what he needs, he needs to be transformed on the inside so that his heart is changed, his inside is changed, that the overflow of that is going to be a changed behavior, changed life. He has to be willing to open himself up. He has to be willing to acknowledge what's going on in the inside because if God can change him there, that changes everything about his life. Because here's the challenge, and this is such a challenge in Oklahoma in 2023. We have been around church, many of us, enough that you can get pretty good at looking religious on the outside when inside you're just a mess and you know your heart's not devoted to the Lord and you know you're not... Uh, devoted to him in worship. You know God's not changed you from the inside, and so you spend your whole life trying to make sure the outside looks religious and the outside looks good. And David is saying that's not the work God wants to do in your life. He wants to change you from the inside out. Verse 7, so what does he ask for? Verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's able to make us clean. He's able to make us new, fresh. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Wow, that's, that's language, that's imagery there. David's acknowledging there are consequences to his sins. These broken bones, they're not the end of my story. That even in my brokenness, even in my pain, I'm able to rejoice because of the work that God's doing in my life. Verse 10, no, verse 9, I'm sorry. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, verse 11, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What David has done in verses nine through 12 is he's made this transition where he's acknowledging this is what God has done in my life. He's provided forgiveness and healing. And because of that, I have a new future. Because I've acknowledged my sin, because God's dealt with my past, I'm able to live differently in the future. God, let me live in a new way. Let me be used for your purposes. Verse 13, look at what happens. 
when God does this work in your heart, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. When God changes your life, when God saves you, the overflow of that is praise, acknowledging what he's done in your life. Verses 16 and 17. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He doesn't want just external sacrifices. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This goes back to what we talked about several weeks ago, about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. If you were with us a few weeks ago, you know the difference between those is godly sorrow is I am deeply broken because of my sin. I realize, I own, I acknowledge what has happened in my life. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. This brokenness that happens that leads to repentance and salvation and new life because there's also worldly sorrow, which is, I'm really sorry I got caught. <laughs> uh, worldly sorrow is sorry, not sorry. Uh, worldly sorrow says, I'm sorry this happened, but I'm honestly just going to continue to live just the way I've been living up to this point. Godly sorrow is a brokenness that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, that leads to praise, that leads to being able to minister to others because of the healing that God has brought into our lives. The sacrifices that God is looking for are sacrifices of praise that come from a changed life, which means, which means what means. When we gather on Sunday morning to praise God, we want that to be an overflow of our recognition of what God has done in our lives. At the very best moments, when we gather on Sunday morning and we gather to sing, we're not forcing ourselves to sing, we're not just mumbling words, it is an overflow of God's character. It is an overflow of recognizing how much I need the Lord and what he's done in my life, and I want to praise him. All I can do is praise him because of the way he has saved me, because of the way he has changed my life. And so David's realizing, I didn't deserve to be forgiven. I didn't deserve a new future. I didn't deserve the healing that God has brought, but he has done this, and I'm going to praise him. I'm going to celebrate him before others. Verse 18. Do good to Zion, O God, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Those verses seem like kind of a strange tag onto the end of the chapter. Some scholars believe that David himself wrote those verses. Other scholars believe that those verses were added to a psalm that David had already written. They were added at the time that the people went into exile. They got kicked out of the land, and then they were able to come back into the land. Here's the point of those last two verses. The psalmist here is acknowledging that what he needed individually to be healed and restored, the people as a whole need the same thing. So, I said that really poorly. Let me take tip number two at it. Tip number two would be what God has done in my life individually, bringing healing and forgiveness and revival, we need as a people. We need as a community. We need as a church. We need as a city. So God, do this work 
do this work in my life, bring revival, and start with me. God, we need to be transformed as a church. We need to be transformed as your people. But I know that that flows out of an individual life that has been transformed. So verse 1 up to verse 17 is David's personal experience with God's salvation. Verses 18 and 19 is David saying, God, I need you to do this in my people. I need you to do this in our, our group as a whole. Okay, from those verses, just so many things to look at in those verses. Let me boil it down to four things for you. If you think to yourself, there is something in my past that continues to control me and haunt me and hold me back, something I've done or that's been done to me, how can I move forward in my relationship with God? How can I have a fresh future? How can I move forward? Let me give you four things. Number one, it begins with recognition. We might say confession. The first step is I have to recognize what in my past is causing so much pain? I have to recognize what in my past is holding me back. I've got to be willing to confess that and acknowledge that. Sometimes you can see this really clearly. Like you know exactly the moment, you know the person, you know the situation, you know the action, you know what it is there in your past that holds you back. Sometimes you need other people to help you process this, to see you why am I like this? Like, why do these things show up in life? Why am I struggling in this way? Because sometimes through busyness in life, sometimes because, honestly, we just don't want to see it, sometimes because we grew up in families where you were told, just move on, like, we're not dealing with the past, we're not talking about the past, we're not processing the past, you better just figure it out and move on. And there's something personality-driven family history driven generationally even from a couple of generations back where we don't deal with the past we don't have time to worry about the past we're not going to mess with that we've just got to move on well friend you can do that but your past is still going to go with you you can choose not to look back there you can choose not to process those things in the past whether you choose to look back there or not it's still going to show up in some ugly ways in your life it's still going to show up in some toxic difficult ways it's still going to bring hurt What's the old phrase? Hurt people, hurt people. (laughs) When you have been hurt, or you have caused hurt, or you are carrying hurt, whether you like it or not, it's going to come out on people around you. It's going to come out in these different ways. And what David shows us in this psalm is you have to acknowledge it. We have to own it. We have to realize what we're facing in our lives. And there is power in confession. Confession before God and confession before others. When it comes to the pain in our past, our dumb mistakes, our sins, things that have happened to us, I do think we can acknowledge there's a difference between privacy and secrecy. Not everybody needs to know everything. I completely acknowledge that. In fact, it's probably not healthy. Some people don't need to know what you've been through because, honestly, they're just going to misuse it, and they're, they're going to look at you. And it's not going to be healthy. Secrecy is deadly. Privacy can be a great gift. Privacy can be a great gift secrecy is spiritually deadly. If there are things in our past that are controlling us, that continue to haunt us, that continue to impact our relationship with God and others, we have to deal with it. We have to confess it before God and others. We have to talk to somebody about it. We have to process these things. How do you do this? In our very, very best moments, the church should be your greatest gift at moments like this for processing these things, thinking through these things, finding the hope of the gospel. 
And at the same time, let me quickly say, there are also times that the church has not been good at this, that has not handled these in a good way. Adamaeus, we've got to figure out a way, loving one another, being patient with one another, caring for one another, where if you're dealing with something in your past that continues to haunt you, that you have people around you who love you and care for you, you're going to walk with you through those things. There's great value in professional counseling, people walking through these things. There's great value in really awkward, hard family conversations and friend conversations. And, hey, I know, uh, I know we don't talk about Bruno around here, but, but we, we got to talk about Bruno. Like, there is something here that has been buried that's not being acknowledged, and we've got to be willing to deal with it. Step number one, recognition and confession. Step number two, repentance or release. So when we realize this has been holding me back, this is affecting my relationship with God and others. I don't want to deal with this, but I have to. Then we move to repentance. If we're the one who has sinned, we turn back toward God and say, God, I turn to you. I turn away from that sin. I acknowledge that, and I turn to you. Will you forgive me? This is the hope of the gospel. This is the message of the gospel that seems too good to be true. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I hope this is a place you can come and you feel welcome and this is a great place to hear about the Bible and hear about the things of Jesus, but here's the message of the gospel that seems too good to be true. How do I get rid of all the guilt and pain and sin of my past? Like, what do I need to do to get rid of it? Can I tell you what you need to do? Repent and believe in Jesus. And I know you wanna throw something at me and say that's too good to be true, that can't be right. Repent and believe in Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, he took all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our pain upon himself, and when we turn to him, we are made clean. We are made new. We are transformed from the inside out. Now, growing in that, sure, that takes time. That's a, that's a process, but your salvation your healing, your forgiveness is found when you turn and trust in Jesus. And if you've been carrying a bunch of junk from your past, today is the day to repent and get rid of that. And to know that Jesus saves, that he makes you new. And if you want to believe that, but you say, I just can't believe that right now, let's talk afterward. Let's, let's work through that. There's so much good news there. What about if you're not trying to deal with your sin in the past, but you're trying to deal with what other people have done to you. This is where we have to come to a point that we release it to the Lord. Because what happens when someone has hurt you in your past and you keep trying to carry that and hold on to that? It tends to get heavier with time. It continues to grow with time. It continues to get toxic and warped and worse with time. All these things continue to follow us. We need to be able to release that, turn that, give that to God. Sometimes the healing happens immediately. Sometimes the healing takes time. Releasing these things to God takes time. Uh, sometimes it feels like you're going in a circle. Like, I just keep dealing with this junk from my past. It's actually not a circle. It's a spiral. You're getting closer to the middle. It just doesn't, it just doesn't feel like it. Uh, I'll tell you a quick, quick story about this. A couple of years ago, my, my son and I went skiing with my dad out at, out at Wolf Creek. And so we were out there skiing and my dad and son had gone off to ski in one area and I was on the other side of the mountain uh, by myself. And 
come off. I'd come off of a couple of years of hard ministry at a previous church and some things that I just had really never dealt with. And then the time here at Emmaus, such a great church, but, but it just didn't start as well as I'd hoped for, and it was bumpy and some hard situations. And I got on a chairlift at that mountain at, at Wolf Creek, not really thinking about anything. And this is probably time number one and only the only time this has ever happened to me in my life. Riding up that chairlift, it was like all of the pain of the last four or five years just hit me out of nowhere. It's the strangest borderline out-of-body experience I've ever had. It all just came at me. And as quick as it came at me, a sense of release and God's peace came over me at that moment. And, and I'll tell you, my processing of my past is normally not that quick and clean. Like, I got a lot of junk I'm still trying to work through in my head and keep, stays with me. But in that moment, it was like God took all of this pain and suffering and said, I've got that. You've got to give that to me. Trust me. I got on the chairlift, didn't think about it. It hit me going up, and I got off the chairlift in just the sense of peace and hope. We've got to repent. We've got to release. We've got to trust God with these things. Number three, redemption. Redemption. This is when you experience God's salvation in your life. God, my past is a mess. I choose to turn to you. Make me new. Make me new. There's this language, all these words in, in Psalm 51 that start with R-E. I have a rejoicing heart, a renewed spirit, a restored joy. It's just like a preacher's dream there, all these R-E words to, together, like experience this redemption. This is the new work that God wants to do in your life. The past has consequences, but it does not have control of your life when you're in Christ. There are things that we continue to deal with, things that we continue to process, but your past does not determine your future in Christ. We have a new identity. We have been set free by the power of the gospel. The message of the resurrection of Jesus says that my future is not determined by my past. The whole message of the resurrection is there's a new day coming. There's a fresh future in front of me, and it's all because of Jesus that I've been redeemed. And then what happens when I'm redeemed? Number four, revival. How does revival happen? We want revival to happen in our lives. We want revival to happen in churches. What happens? I realize my sin and my pain from my past. I repent and I turn to the Lord. I give it to him. He pours out the gospel. He pours out forgiveness. He pours out hope. He pours out peace. He pours out his love. I am made new. The past doesn't control me anymore. And there's a new day. And what do we do with that revival? We're going to proclaim and display Jesus. <laughs> David says in Psalm 51, God, you have made me new, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life telling people about this. When I realize what God has done in my, in my life, the, the healing and the forgiveness, I have to turn around and tell other people that because it's such good news. And David says, I'm going to spend the rest of my life proclaiming and displaying Jesus. I want other people to know this. God, bring revival. We need revival in our church. Revival happens Revival happens in churches, not when we schedule on the calendar. That's, that's fine. There's, there's a time for that. There's a history of that. Revival happens in churches when we get serious about our sin, when we recognize our sin and the junk of our past, and we turn to the Lord, and he pours out his forgiveness and salvation, and it changes the way we live. That is where that revival comes. Revival comes through prayer. 
Revival comes through prayer. As we end our service this morning, we're not going to end with the final song. We're going to end with the time of prayer. And very specifically, let me be really clear about how this is going to work. We're going to give you a few minutes, and by a few, I'm talking like two to four to five, something like that, a few minutes here. Here's what I want you to do during this time of prayer. What in your past just haunts you? Like you, it, it stays with you. It's something you've done. And you can't get over the guilt. You're like Zacchaeus. You just want to pay back. You're trying to pay back. Guilt doesn't drive a changed life. Forgiveness of guilt drives a changed life. Like we can't spend our lives trying to earn God's salvation. God, I need you to change me. I need you to deal with my past so I can move forward. During this time of prayer, if you need someone to pray with you, there are going to be people up here at the front. There are going to be people in the landing area at the back. Maybe during this time of prayer, you just want to pray with your family. You want to get together with some friends and pray. Whatever that looks like, take advantage of this time. Don't waste this time that we have. We have come here to do business with God, to say, God, set me free from my past so I can move into the future. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to have some music playing in the background, and we're going to have a few minutes of prayer and then I'll come back up and wrap that up. So let me pray for us right now as we move into this time. God, I think about the, the first time that Bathsheba would have heard that song from, from David. And there's a good chance it caused some pain in her heart to think about what was done to her. And yet here's this man who's experienced this redemption and changed life. God, thank you that you heal our past. God, thank you that what has happened to us in our past and what we have done in our past, it does not determine our identity and it does not determine our future. And God, I pray this morning that you would bring healing to people's lives. God, I pray that they would turn to somebody next to them and ask for prayer. God, I pray that they would get up and come around the room and find somebody to pray with. Just come to these front steps. God, I pray that if there's somebody here and they have never trusted in Jesus for salvation, they've never known what it is to have that guilt and the sins of their past taken away, God, help them this morning to see that Jesus is where we find hope and forgiveness and a new future, that they would turn and trust in him for salvation today. Father, release our church family over the next few minutes just to pray together, to call out to you. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.